You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, today I wanted to start with defining something and then digging into a little bit. But you have been thinking a lot about data trusts, but I don't actually know what that is. Can you start me off with a ground level definition? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. So um, I think, so we trace back the first use of the term is by Lillian Edwards in a 2004 paper but I use the term without knowing about that. So, so while crediting Lillian, we can come back to sort of what she sort of says. I'll sort of uh, give a sense of when I first used the term, which I think is the second use of the term, which is 2016, which was a, a paper um, about uh, how we can realign the sort of incentives of people that hold large volumes of data with those people that they're holding the data on behalf of. So the original analogy is like that our data ecosystems are somewhat like a feudal ecosystem, meaning that there's a sort of information commons where we share everything freely. That's the commons. You had that in feudal systems. And then there's a sort of feudal lord who uh, you have a relationship with as a sort of vassal or... In the terminology of uh, data protection legislation, we are actually called all called data subjects. So this feels pretty, you are the subject. And the data controller is very often in the position of a feudal lord. They have some duty of care for you. But if they fail in that duty of care, there's a sort of asymmetry of information and power that it's difficult to call them to account. So in the medieval village, when um, depending on which period you're in, you know, I don't know, the Vikings show up or where you live, you know, the Saracens show up, uh, you know, you turn up and you're like, but you had a duty of care. And, you know, it's a bit late by then. That That's sort of where I feel we are with data, that people are holding your data on behalf. They have a duty of care over it. The, the Certainly in Europe, and I think there's now legislation in California, the, the sort of the duty of care they have is something that they are responsible to perhaps the information commissioner's office in the UK, for example. But uh, by the time you find out that they've been not paying attention, it's a bit late. And, and it's tough because it's not that people are trying to behave evilly or anything, but it's just their incentive structure is not aligned with yours. So they're trying to sort of run a business. They do probably have standards over data care, but sometimes it's secondary and it doesn't directly lead to profit unless you have a lot of systems in place, um, it, it, can, it is obviously sometimes going to be done badly and you get data leaks and, and whatever else. So the notion with data trust was to sort of say, well, so I call that the, the digital oligarchy and I have sort of old Guardian articles around that. And then the notion of um, data trusts is to say, well, we move beyond that with democracy and democracy isn't that the government's constantly doing what we want the whole time. It's that they're called to account on a regular basis every, whatever, four or five years, depending on. So they're incentivized to sort of not to depart too much from your intent while they make decisions. The challenge with data is its power comes when it's accumulated. So you have to have, as an individual, our voice is, you know, not large enough unless we sort of do a large campaign or some sort of protest. But once we need an anarcho syndicalist commune of data. What is it we got at the moment? It's uh, <laughs> Extinction um, Rebellion. Yeah, you know, we need that. Yes. Yeah. So you could go that way. I always think of the uh, 
You may, all these things make me think of Monty Python and when they show up. Immediately, immediately what you thought of is I thought the of the Holy person Grail. in control of oh, the data. Oh, I guess because like Arthur turns up <laughs> and then he's like, who made you king? You know, it's like, I am your king. Who says? And he, he's arrived in some Not sort of Not my king. Commune. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. <laughs> how do you tell that he's king? Yeah, and now you've destroyed the entire seriousness of this digital oligarchy of constantly... Yeah, so you arrive at your feudal lord and he turns out to... We have eyes, you got one! No, no, that's not what happens. So the idea is that's not how we solve it. We should solve it that way. That would be fun. It'd probably be quicker. But the data trust idea. So so what you have to do is you need some sort of bottom-up movements. And uh, part of it is inspired by land society movements where people got together and formed these land societies in the UK and they got the vote because you had to own land for that. So in a similar way, the idea is that you combine together and you form a trust. Now, a trust is in UK law, it's sort of separate, used to be run by separate courts. It's a sort of the courts of equity, I think they were called, but it's a formalism by which, and they're very widely used in the US and UK for management of money, trust funds and these sort of things, where um, you have a set of trustees, you have a sort of set of settlers and beneficiaries, and you can write the constitutional terms of the trust in the manner in which you please. And the idea would be is that you band together with a group of like-minded people, you form a data trust, the constitution of that trust, you set up to sort of describe how you're going to expect the trustees to manage your data. You, you become potentially both the settlers and the beneficiaries of the trust. So you sort of say, like, like we get together and say, oh, we're going to share our data together in order to try and improve a particular disease or we want to maximize the money we're getting from advertising or whichever you, you you sort of write that in the terms and conditions of the trust and you sort of choose to share your data in that way now i wrote about this idea i think in 2016 in response to and and that i'm constantly personally always thinking about challenges around medical data because medical data seems to me the distillation of data. It's like the whiskey of data in terms of the worst things and the best things associated with data happen with medical data. Like if you get it right, you know, you save lives. If you get it wrong, then you severely impair lives. You know, sharing people's personal private medical records, incredibly dangerous, but the benefits really good so so i can almost you know any other data is a sort of um a dilution of those extremes and, and one thing that happens with medical data is people will tend to give consent in the moment of when they've been diagnosed or a close relative has been diagnosed so you end up with this situation where you know if i'm diagnosed with a life-threatening illness i'm likely to sort of immediately give consent my family are all going to do the same thing because it doesn't seem that but you know, if you extend that and say, well, everyone should share all their medical data all the time because we'll cure all the diseases. Right. Everybody's like, I don't know about that. Well, it's sort of, it, it's to me, you know, and, and other people would disagree. I feel that this is, that's extremely dangerous. That's sort of very widespread sharing and it would typically be managed by governments. Now, alternatively, if you had a data trust that was a sort of independent organization managed by trustees and, you know, you would choose a data trust at some point and you would share your data with it and they may be sharing your data on your behalf, 
but they won't simply be incentivized in the way that, you know, although medics are interested in your benefit, they're also interested in curing the disease and personal reputation sometimes for being the ones that, you know, there's lots of examples in medicine of people getting a bit carried away, even though their initial, you know, desire was to do good things. And so the trust mechanism means that you have a new sort of group of people, these data trustees who I think in our notion would, uh, and I've done a lot of work since with Sylvie Delacroix, we even sort of envisage these becoming like a new profession that understand these balances and operate these balances on your behalf. And the important thing about trust law is that it requires a fiduciary responsibility between the trustees and the beneficiaries. So this is a higher standard of responsibility than you get under classical duty of care from contract law. Right. And in the a fiduciary responsibility, there's been a lot of discussion around it in the U.S. recently, at least in terms of financial planners. There were some new rules put in saying that trying to move people towards having a fiduciary responsibility, which is where you are responsible for that person's well-being. You have to have their well-being in mind. You can't just be, you can't just be operating for your benefit or to execute the job. So there's a notion, and I, it varies, you know, across different. Um legislative regions, but uh, there's a notion of undivided loyalty, which means that you you cannot have different incentives. So, so there's, there's an alternative proposal, which from our perspective doesn't work, called information fiduciaries, actually, where the commercial entity is set up as a fiduciary. But I mean, we argue against that because we think, well, that, that can't make sense from the perspective, the, the you know, if you're trying to make profit from the data directly, you probably you we don't think that, you know that seems you can't have undivided loyalty, but it's exactly that notion. And there's and and what you're saying is embedded in this is sort of higher standards of um, supervision a trustee needs to have, which is they can't just say, oh yeah, I didn't notice. You know, they, they sort of have to be actively looking out for it. Now, there's clearly lots of questions like, oh, who would want to be a data trustee then if you've got all these responsibilities? But then under the same token, well, who would want to be a lawyer or a doctor or anything else? So but what's very important about this? So actually, we had meetings in London, which were um, un unfortunately sort of what happened in the UK is I mentioned this in giving evidence to one of the AI reports. And it was included in the AI report, but I wasn't in the meeting where they discussed it. So in the UK... In the UK, it's sort of like it just appeared and no one knew where it come from and no one really asked me. So it's become really confused. But in Canada, this idea was picked up and is being looked at very closely, I think, by the government and Element AI. And Canada is very interesting because they have civil law jurisdictions in Quebec and common law jurisdictions. And the notion of trust isn't quite as embedded in a civil law. But but um, Sylvie, the, the lawyer I work with on this, thinks uh, that there's, there's ways of coming up with a similar notion. Now, the fiduciary responsibility is important, and we're suggesting that, therefore, one should form trusts to do that. What you see at the moment, which I think we're very nervous about, is a notion of trust washing. So trust washing is when you call something a trust that's not a trust, because trust sounds good. So, for example, in the UK, NHS trusts, which run hospitals, are not trusts. Right. They just It's marketing. It's good branding. It's just and, – and the problem is no one knows it's not a trust. So you're trying to use this name to and, – and that's come up a few times since the word – so since since I think I proposed this term, people – it's like a meme. People say, yeah, data trust. And, and, and it's fine to have data sharing agreements around 
data that you don't put in a trust or you don't put fiduciary responsibilities against. But those are, you shouldn't call them trusts. And and there's a lot of work uh, coming out of, um, I think it may be in NYU, but certainly coming out of New York around the term data collaboratives, which I think is an excellent term to to describe. And I would say a data trust is an example of a particular form of data collaborative where you're looking to add these fiduciary responsibilities. But there are things like, you know, one can imagine the notion of a data cooperative. The, the notion of a cooperative is is quite well defined, certainly in the UK, of workers sort of coming together and sort of profit sharing in some way, you know, uh, and certainly I've seen in Colombia, the coffee workers used to have this big cooperative before everything became sort of single origin farms, whatever. And the, the cooperative and cooperative is very interesting as well. Um, one of the, the challenges, so we're, the UK, the Open Data Institute has produced a report in the UK. And one of the challenges of that report is none of the sort of examples they looked at really was personal data, the key thing. And I wouldn't say that the only time you need a trust is for personal data, but but that was the proposal that that's where you need these fiduciary responsibilities, these enhanced duties of care. Data sharing agreements themselves are a problem. I mean, and, and I think one of the problems in the UK, the debate around data trust has now become conflated with the debate around data sharing agreements. And these are sort of pretty much two separate things. The data trust is a mechanism by which to set up, to re-inject this sort of democratic feel and entities representatives of the sort of user or consumer in that debate because if you had a large data trust with say 30 million members then they would have to be taken very seriously in terms of what they were saying on behalf of their members of course there would be all the challenges that you know not every single member would agree with and so our vision is that there should be an ecosystem of such trusts so that you could vote with your feet so that you know if, if a trust was was if you change your idea about what represented you you could leave one trust and move to another and you can even imagine hierarchies so you might have certain trusts that are focusing on medical data particular medical problems but then they could become associated with broader umbrellas of trusts that were managing you know in the conditions under which your data was being shared to solve those medical problems all, all to try and reduce the cognitive load on you because GDPR and these data protections legislation, they're providing, you know, they're, they're, they're very interesting. And I, I find them, some people are quite negative about them. I've always been quite positive about their intent. They're about consequential decision making. What we're experiencing now, that the, the era of consequential decision making when these laws were written is sort of going back to sort of 20 years when people may be making a decision based on your data and it was likely to be something that would affect you significantly, something like, oh, you can't go to this college or we, you're not having this loan or we're not giving you insurance. Um, so that's a decision of consequence. And, and those things can be challenged. But the, the challenge we're facing now is really the accumulated effect of inconsequential decision making. So each decision itself is inconsequential, but the accumulated effect is consequential and that's what the data trust mechanism is designed to do it needs things like gdpr because they give individuals rights over their personal data and the trust can only really exist if the individuals have rights so you can't have a trust over you, we can't have sort of wishy-washy i have no rights over this thing i'm giving you and so the two types of, uh, of rights you can imagine is sort of erasure rights the rights to tell people delete my data and sharing rights to so sort of a negative control delete it or a positive control i'm going to share it with you now those two are not always overlapping for personal data so actual ownership of stuff like iphones you have full right of sort of deciding who you share your iphone with and who you take your iphone away from so that's 
pure ownership. But within property law, there's other notions of ownership which aren't pure ownership, which um, and an example we like to think about is rivers, where you have different rights to the rivers. So Riparian water rights and all that good stuff. Precisely. So things and there's different rights for people who want to use the river for for drinking, for irrigation, for navigation, for power. And these are all often intention. But there's only one river. You don't get to sort of, um, and there's people upstream and people downstream, pretty complex. So, you know, it's it's not clear to me that the things we're going to face with data are any more complex than that. They, they will be more commonplace. So we need to get much more on top of these things. And the idea with the data trusts is each trust would, in effect, be developing its own mini legislative ecosystem. So if you have a variety of these things, then effectively you're piloting these things in different places and you want a number of things to be tried. The alternative of like governments just deciding it's going to be all like this for our citizens, you know, they can't know the future. Uh, and they, you know, we already know like what we may have decided 10 years ago is different to what we might think today. So, so the, the trusts system, it has to do two things. One, you have to have People have to have faith in the institutions that are going to manage their data. And that's that's something we're lacking at the moment, an institutional faith, like people had to have in banks. Why are banks always in these very uh, sort of, in, well, modern banks aren't, but historically banks were always in buildings with classically designed big pillars, makes you feel secure, my money is safe here, because there was a time in which, you know, banks could be robbed and stuff like this. So you, you banks had to give an institutional impression of your money is safe with us. That sort of faded a bit, but we need an institutional faith in some entity. So the use of trusts, which is something we're familiar with, is a way of creating that institutional faith. Of course, the downside is people use trusts for bad things too. So there's an entire danger area of dark trusts that might misuse data. Let's pretend that's not there. We'll have to deal with that. <laughs> let's just not look at that right now. Let's not look at that now. Let's not mention Panama Papers. Let's not mention... Uh, all these sort of tax avoidance schemes and everything else. You know, and of course, the reason why they're done through trusts is because the people who are wanting to sort of hide their money in that way want the people who have their money to have fiduciary responsibilities. Indeed, the first trusts were formed for crusaders heading off to the east to fight, and they wanted someone, yeah, take care of my stuff. And they'd come back and said, yeah, yeah, it's great. And uh, you can't have it back. Oh, yeah, no, your stuff's, your stuff's fine. fine. And it's now mine. <laughs> so that law was sort of introduced to sort of deal with that challenge. I mean, I think isn't the whole of Robin Hood about Richard Lionheart turning up and finding finding that King John is sort of said, yeah, your kingdom's great. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's no problem. I'm just totally chasing this one dude around the woods all the time. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I'm not totally jealous of his girlfriend or whatever. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't thinking entirely about that. And isn't one, is he a lion? Are they both lions? We were talking about this, yeah. Uh, no, it's Richard the Lionhearted, and then I think Robin Hood is often portrayed as a fox, and then there's... Often portrayed um, in all Sir, the Disney versions, uh, yes. In all the Disney versions, in all the American versions of your your English whatever eggs that you've brought over to us. Was King John a lion, though? Yeah, because he's the Lionhearted, right? Like, no, isn't that, like, Richard's actually his... the Lionhearted. Oh, see, I don't know. I'm American, man. You can't put that on me. <laughs> I don't know, he might even be Prince John. Anyway, we have not a good example given that it didn't work out that well for King Richard. No. And no, the feudal so system good. was rife at that time. But maybe you get the general idea that the notion is that you use trusts to manage. So you use trust to manage the rights of the um, the sort of data subjects on their behalf and to make them a more significant 
player in the data ecosystem because there's just so many, you know, there's so much going on. I mean, the, the alternative mechanisms we have at the moment at the Information Commissioner's Office. I don't actually, in the UK, I think the coolest thing they did recently is in response to Cambridge Analytica. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but they had jackets. They had jackets with ICO on the back, which it just was like that, like, turn, you know, that turned them around from being like, what's the ICO to like, oh my goodness, the ICO are raiding us. And I just thought that was such a clever idea to have the jackets with like the FBI. They had, because normally we don't have jackets. That's like an American thing. Americans love jackets. Like, like normally we just have this sort of weird blue helmets and a truncheon. But this show we like really meant business on data. So I thought that was, it's a really interesting visual moment. And you see how important these things are in changing people's mind about these things. And I've perceived that there's a sort of increased sort of understanding of the ICO. Maybe maybe that's just me. But they can't do everything. And, you know, they're mainly responsible for these big infringements. So, you know, to, to have something somewhere where you, you believe that someone's worrying about your data on a day-to-day -day basis, there's clearly many challenges, including, right, well, how do you bootstrap these, set them up? How do the data trustees get paid? How do we train the data trustees? And, and those are big challenges. But I think that the destination, if we could get there, um, would be, I, I see it as dealing with some of the systemic problems we've got, where there's a misalignment of incentives between those that are holding the data and those that the data affects, you know, as represented in the sort of feudal current ecosystem. Yeah, there's some really interesting organizational thinking about how you can rely on a brand to take care of a larger societal issue, but only if that is actually a priority of the of the group that you're you're in. And I think we have a mismatch, right? We're in this sort of like growing pains place where our the priorities no longer match the needs. And so this is a really fascinating idea. Um, do, you said that you said that there's some really interesting stuff in Canada going on with Element AI around thinking about this. Are there any examples that we should be looking to? Well, Element AI have created a report that I was involved in the workshop that inputs to that report. And at one point, there was a Canadian government announcement around exploring this. And the thing I think I was most excited about when I was there at the Data Trusts is I met a, quite a senior civil servant in, I, I think he was senior, I, I didn't know who he was, because he was a, I was being introduced, I wasn't being introduced to him. The story is I was with Bernard Shulkoff, and Bernard Shulkoff was being introduced to him. And I was just there, like, I, you know, I'm standing next to Bernard. This happens to be all the time, like Bernard's being introduced, okay, uh, while they chat to Bernard. And, and this guy that was being introduced to Bernard, he goes, are you Neil Lawrence? Like, and sort of totally blanks Bernard. And I'm like, wait, why, yes, I am, because he saw my badge. And he had read the Data Trusts article from 2016. And in Canada, just this article, I think Joshua may have done an, an amount to promote it. I'm not sure. But it's sort of well known in the civil servant circles and the origin. And so ironically, in Canada, the idea is known from the article, whereas in the UK, I'm working towards trying to reinstate some of those thoughts. But and uh, so that was, that was like my best moment is like, uh, Bernard was, uh, I, I out Bernarded Bernard, in front of a Canadian civil servant. That was when they had the meeting there. They had the G7 AI meeting that was occurring at the same time of Europe's. So Trudeau turned up, but someone had organized a press conference at the main conference. So I had to leave when Trudeau was there and attend this press conference. So I had to sit in this press conference rather than sort of have Trudeau go, are you Neil Lawrence? No, I don't think Trudeau. I don't know who would have done that dumb move. 
that's exactly what would have happened. Sorry. <laughs> well, you can find more about data trusts and all of this fascinating thinking, including the the paper that first mentioned it, and then Neil's Neil's thinking later on on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Our listener question this week on Talking Machines is pretty straightforward. Mayathra Raghu just published on her blog a post called Citation Statistics of Machine Learning Papers, in which she evaluates citations of papers at some of the major conferences over the past couple of years. What do you guys think of this, and shouldn't we be trying to do this more? I think it's an amazing idea, right? Why isn't the field applying its analytical tools to get a better understanding of itself? And also, I think that the work that Maithra has done is put a really interesting lens on the trends that we're seeing. And I think, at least from, from my vantage point, the field loves a good trend and loves to chase that trend. So it's really fascinating to see, like the general adversarial nets, the formal title of the paper from 2014, has almost 8,000 citations, right? It's, it's, really, it's really fascinating to see this broken down in, in a formal way. Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, in some sense, what, um, what you're sort of really saying is physician heal thyself. Let's get um, on top of our own work. And, you know, it's an interesting question. Why don't we see this more? And I, as you were talking about this, um, about this blog, and it's great, it's often the junior researchers that come out with this stuff. But it was making me think of a time way back when, back in the late 1990s, Stephen Lawrence and collaborators from NEC Labs created Sightseer. Sightseer was this amazing site where they had browsed the web for PDFs, identified who was citing who, and sort of provided an overview which was actually pretty slow to do the search on because they, you know, it was so popular. And I think kind of what happened to it is Google saw that was a cool idea and did Google Scholar, and then that was the end of it. And then until Microsoft Academic Search, Google Scholar stayed static for years until Microsoft Academic released a really cool augmented search engine. And that triggered, I think, Google to spend a bit of time improving Google Scholar till it is what we have today, which has been fairly static for a while. Now, more recently, the Allen Institute for AI has come out with Semantic Scholar, which is actually, it reminds me a bit, some of its features of Sightseer. So it's fascinating what you're saying, because like it's totally like physician heal thyself, eat your own dog food, get on and analyze your own data. And as you were saying it, I thought, oh, my goodness, one of the things that's happened is that we academic. I mean, Stephen was a, 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 at NEC, but my understanding is, you know, he's an academic type working at NEC labs, which is a very academic lab. He sort of got squashed by just a sort of industrial entity doing it better. But one of the problems of that is once that's happened, we sort of lost control over access to that data. It isn't easy always to get Google Scholar. Um, my understanding is there's quite a small team that operates it. So clearly they, they have a number of priorities to do and the data isn't public. So we can't, and, and academics are just brilliant at coming up with ideas or seeing that something's cool, but perhaps not so good at 
turning it into something sustainable that scales that companies do well. So it would be really good to come up with a way of, I mean, maybe I'm not sure how open semantic scholar is, but you, 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 you're totally right. And uh, I think ways of examining our own data and searching our own data um, are critical. And it's an interesting question why it is that we can't sustain consistent effort across the community. And I think, by the way, I think that that's a large part of the swing back to, I mean, when JMLR was released in 2001, you know, I just presumed all journals would just be freely available on the web like JMLR since then. That hasn't happened in almost any other field. And it's maybe just the persistence of companies. They pay people to just do stuff. Not all of it stuff that academics are willing to spend time doing. And if they can make money out of it, they'll keep doing it. Not that I think Google's necessarily making any money out of Google Scholar. But it's a great question. And I think there's a much bigger question behind it, which is, how do we get on top of monitoring ourselves? Because at the moment, a lot of these monitoring systems, because of some of these reasons, are in the control of companies, which is not necessarily a bad thing if companies are doing a good job. But my sense is they're just not agile enough for some of the questions we'd like to answer. That, And we, we lose the ability to drive forward with, with more innovation. So, so it's great that people are sort of looking at these things again and perhaps in a more focused way uh, specific to the ML community because sites here did start in computer science, but you know it wasn't specific to uh, ML. So yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, and in in this in her analysis, she's using data sets from I believe NeurIPS and ICML, and you know just the suggestions for where she suggests we could take this are are pretty pretty simple. What about like CVPR and ICLR and like iClear and and bringing it to these other data sets. Well, one of the things I'd like to do, and I've had this on my sort of uh, agenda for a while. So I set up um, PMLR, which was originally JMLR Workshop and Conference Proceedings, which actually hosts ICML, AI Stats, Colt, a number of other conferences. And people haven't really noticed, but I provide all the metadata for all those conferences live as they go up with uh, I, I don't have the citations information but um you you can get this it's all provided in yaml format and it's updated as the conferences have gone up there's a sort of index file on the main page they haven't noticed because i haven't told anyone so here i am telling people neil you should tell people about pmlr so, yeah, pmlr goes back to sort of 2000 and Six, I think 2005 when ironically I was organizing a workshop and I think I contacted LNCS and they sort of said we will consider your application for our workshop and if you are accepted you may pay us this amount of money and I was like oh my goodness so I think I wrote to Leslie Pat Cabling saying good Jim and I'll do conference proceedings and she said yes and you should organize them so you see the first one is Gaussian Processes in Practice organized by uh, Neil Lawrence and Wakinian Canero Candela and Anton Schweig um, but since then, it's got nearly 100 volumes. It includes AI stats. And recently, Mark Reed and I, one of the things we did with it, which I'm so proud of, and I think is probably my best contribution to the community, and I haven't really written it up anywhere, is got it all on GitHub. So it's all hosted. Well, someone's paying for it somehow, but they're all 
GitHub, every volume is a GitHub repo. So you can fork all the volumes. If you are to fork a volume, you will have access to all the PDFs. People can correct errors in it through submitting pull requests. And we have a little mechanism for doing that. And we get sent uh, zipped PDFs. Uh, and a bib file, and then we expand that into our system for exposing. But part of the, as part of moving to GitHub, I created the facility to download, uh, I think it's a YAML file, and I even have Python code somewhere, which um, if people want to find out about it, I can uh, share it with them. It's, it sort of wasn't sort of ever as complete as I'd like it to be for bringing that into Pandas and effectively getting a sort of Pandas data frame of the conferences. And uh, I think that would be a great resource because it's ICML, it's AI stats, it's cult, it's a number of smaller workshops, it's uh, machine learning for healthcare. KDD, COPA, yeah, all sorts of amazing well, stuff. KDD, uh, not the main KDD, KDD workshops come in. I should at some point get together with Lee, who does the Europe's things, and, and make sure that these things are presented in a consistent format because he's looked at it and he likes it. It's a sort of it's quite a light touch way. Like we produced a hundred volumes, and you know, so it, it has to be a minimum amount of work for Mark and I who do the series edits. But it is sort of set up as, and it is a resource that's being presented in a standardized format. And the thing that I love about it is it's publication, which is utterly free, apart from the work that the proceedings editors and Mark and I and the authors and the reviewers. But that is the serious work of publication. I mean, I know there are some things we could do slightly better and I would like to improve on those things. But uh, that that's that's how I think things should be uh, published. And so far, we haven't been uh, eliminated. Uh, I think we probably are the main outlet for machine learning publications. So, so we should. I totally agree with her, and we should we should exploit that more. And uh, I'm going to try and find some time to surface some of this stuff a bit better. Well, we will have a link to Mithra's blog post and her analysis. We'll also have a link to PMLR. And if you've got an idea for how we can cut and slice and use lenses back on the field itself, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. Our guest for this episode of Talking Machines is Raya Hatzel of DeepMind. And when we got a chance to sit down with her at iClear, we asked her the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? I think that everybody has a really different career path, and I suppose mine is different as well. I was raised by my parents pretty strictly on a diet of curiosity and solving puzzles and sort of following the thing you know least about but are most interested in do that. Um, this meant that when I went away to college, I ended up with a degree in religion and philosophy, which I'm not sure was actually what my parents were expecting with their <laughs> advice. And But it really was something that I found uh, very interesting. And I learned how to sort of critically think and critically read and really think about arguments and claims and things like this. But then when I actually started some graduate studies in philosophy, then within the first year, I said, wait, but this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, do not want to commit. So I started taking classes in computer science. Um, my father's a mathematician, computer scientist. So took some advice there, uh, really fell in love with just writing code and so solving puzzles that way and thinking about experiments, um, thinking about building things, decided that if a PhD program would have me, I would happily switch from my background two feet into computer science. And NYU accepted me, and I was lucky enough to start my PhD 
being a first-year student, and Jan LeCun was also starting teaching at NYU um, as a first-year professor. So he was looking for students, I was looking for an advisor, and he had a lot of really cool ideas about robotics and machine learning to solve big problems. So we started working together. At that point, neural networks were not well-known, um, or at least they were not well-regarded. But still, that was the tool that we used because it honestly worked the best for the problems that, that we were working on. So my PhD was in representation learning and also in doing online adaptation, online learning on a mobile robot. So really thinking about navigation as being a really interesting domain and real robots out in the field. I spent a couple of years working in industry at SRI International and then DeepMind sort of started getting very interesting. And uh, I really liked the combination of disciplines that they were bringing together, deep learning and reinforcement learning and neuroscience. And I thought that's really compelling. So at about the time that DeepMind was acquired by Google in 2014, I moved myself and family and cats and dog all to London and started working there. And so now I have a, I've been there for five years. I have a, a research team and do a lot of really exciting research. It's a lot of fun. That's fantastic. And what is your, what is your um, group really passionate about right now? What questions are you guys really excited to ask? I will say that I needed to come up with a name for my team recently. And so this was a moment when the team, the 12 of us or so, could really get together and say, okay, what do we call ourselves if we're not just going to be Team Raya? We thought a lot about sort of deep learning in the wild or natural learning, uh, sort of thinking about really wanting to learn to bring together lifelong learning with embodied learning. So thinking about how would robots learn as a baby does. And we briefly considered free-range deep learning <laughs> because that seemed to bring together you know, interest we had in sort of unbounded learning and um, exploration and things like that. But we didn't want to be known as the team of chickens. So we have the name, the Lifelong and Embodied Deep Learning Team. And I'd say that the the areas of interest are, are continual learning. How can we learn over a whole sequence of experience rather than sampling from a data set? How can we learn using robots with all of the, the challenges there, but also the potential rewards? Um, and navigation as a really interesting domain area as well. And I, I'm I'm fascinated by by navigation because it seems it seems so fundamental and yet so difficult at the same time to recreate in a system. And I feel like, um, and maybe this is just my own perception, but um, DeepMind is sort of known for video games or I, I don't know in silico exploration of navigation. But you're doing this you're doing this in the wild, right? Like in out in physical spaces. I would honestly like to be doing more of that. Right now, we've been focusing on simply building more realistic environments to do our research in. So we took recently took Google Street View and said, this is a really good environment for an agent to try to solve problems in. So if you have only the, if you know, the street view view, then you can sort of turn in circles and you can take a step, which takes you to another node in what's an underlying connectivity graph of, say, New York City. So the problem is, without using a map and without using any other guidance, can you learn how to navigate around the city? And I think that, um, and, and the advantage of street view is that it gives us the connectivity is complex. The scale of it is huge. So we work on areas that are three kilometers across and navigating across that sort of distances. And it's photorealistic. 
Now, what we don't have is dynamics, so we don't have to dodge pedestrians or, you know, deal with buses or anything like that. Um, So it's definitely not perfect, but it is, I think, a compellingly realistic environment to learn about navigation. And I I also think that navigation is, is a great problem. It really brings together a lot of core problems that we have that we want to solve with neural networks. So memory representation, how do you come up with a spatial representation that then you can use to do to do planning and uh, attention. I think that attention is something that's really important. If I have all of this information, what do I attend to over time um, in order to make decisions? And tell me more, I'm fascinated about the intersection of neuroscience and machine learning. I mean, they seem to fit so, so naturally together, but tell me about what interests you and, and your group there. I think that there's there's a really nice, strong connection at DeepMind between neuroscience and deep learning and reinforcement learning, deep RL. And it goes both ways. So we both come up with, or neuroscience gives us a lot of compelling inspiration for how things might be solved, or this is what cognition looks like in this animal or, or, in, or in these humans. And so we can use that to inform and inspire the architecture of our networks, maybe the learning algorithms that we use. But it can also go in the other direction, and that's exciting as well. I had a paper a couple of years ago where we where we looked at representations, basically how, how can you learn representations that look like the grid cells and place cells that we know exist in rats and mice and probably in, in humans as well. And so coming up with a learning algorithm that could come up with something where the, the the interior of this artificial neural network, the individual neurons, behaved in a way that was very similar to exactly the characteristics that we record in a mammalian brain was really exciting to, to neuroscientists. Um, and it was really good to sort of give that back. There's also been recent work from the team at DeepMind led by Matt Botvinnik that looks at things like uh, meta-learning. How can, you, how can you learn over sequences of tasks and learn to adapt uh, individually to, to a, you know, a myriad of different, different challenges. Yeah. Does that, does that fit in? Do you feel like meta-learning fits into that sort of lifelong learning idea, the, the accumulation of experience and learning through that? Yeah. I think that there's a, a lot of different ways we can think about, about meta-learning. I like to think about meta-learning as this overarching outer loop that's used to optimize a whole species. And then within that species, you've got individuals and all of those individuals are diverse. And so you can think about it as evolution, but evolution is is slow. And I think that we can probably come up with faster ways than evolution to solve this. But ideally, it should allow for an individual to adapt in a lifetime, that's the inner loop of meta-learning, while still have an outer loop that can optimize over things like what is that lifetime of knowledge, what do multiple lifetimes of knowledge uh, tell us about how to evolve that species. Nice. I think that that meta-learning is um, a topic that a lot of people are getting very excited about lately. <laughs> and I think also that um, reinforcement learning and even like deep reinforcement learning, like these are very, they feel like they're going to be the, the new trend flavor in this space. But as someone who has been thinking about these things for a really long time, what information would you want someone who is perhaps just discovering these things to come into with? What would you caution them towards or like them to know or ground their understanding in? 
I mean, grounding is is always important in this field. It's really easy to get uh, really excited about things or to have claims get overblown, to have outside uh, startups sort of blow things out of proportion and overhype things. And that's something that I, I really feel like we have to stay stay grounded about this. But that being said, yes, DeepRL is a set of learning algorithms that has been maturing in academia for quite a while, several labs that are really invested in this. And it's now starting to move out into actual products or into industry. And it certainly does not have the influence that deep learning has in terms of train a big network on lots of data for a single objective. But now people are starting to see how this could be used for self-driving cars, for robotics. I've given a few talks at robotics conferences and there's and, and I talk about deep reinforcement learning and a lot of people say really and and get really excited about it and I think I think that that's good and I do try to list out all of the challenges there this is not an easy thing but I do think it has it's a set of algorithms that has the potential to completely change how we how we solve robotics problems how we solve the problem of learning in the world with actions with an interactive environment rather than from a data set. Thanks. Excellent. And what what questions are you excited about specifically in that field? Where do you think the the next sort of achievement space is? Is there is there one of those large issues that you feel like might be lower hanging fruit than the others? Hmm. I'm not sure. Low hanging fruit is hard. <laughs> it always seems low hanging. <laughs> It always seems low hanging, and then it's 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 never uh, uh, quite there. And sometimes things that we don't see at first are surprisingly straightforward. They just they want to work, is what we say. And I'm always really happy to hear about something like that. It just it just wanted to work when we tried it. I think that we are getting better at better at coming up with rather than trying to come up with super intelligence or AGI as a final goal. We're thinking more about intelligence as being a learning process that can be very robustly deployed in any particular problem area and be able to solve that problem, be able to optimize for whatever the constraints that are there. And it's that sort of robustness to different to different things that I think is still where we're pushing towards. I guess I would point out perhaps the work that's being done on solving fundamental science problems using these approaches, deep learning or deep reinforcement learning. And I think that there's a lot of different fields of science that are quite excited about this as being, oh, you know, let's think about a whole different way of solving these big intractable problems. I think that protein folding is one example. We recently um, did very well on a on a competition for for protein folding and really excited a lot of people and put a, a little bit of, of new new excitement into that field in terms of thinking about new ways to solve it. I think that there's similarly relatively low-hanging fruit. That's not low-hanging fruit. That took us three years, I think, of solid work to come up with those results. Uh, so low-hanging fruit is definitely relative. But there are other areas of sort of big scientific problems that potentially could be solved in very different ways um, that haven't been considered yet. Um, I think that climate modeling is possibly something that would be really exciting to see some bigger teams and some researchers working on. Nice. That's fascinating. So I feel like that that sort of movement takes a solid approach to collaboration, right? If it's the bringing of these tools and models into spaces that 
that have not been able to previously use them. What do you think young researchers or people involved in the field who are interested in collaborating more, what sort of ideas should they arm themselves with as they start to work with people who are experts in other fields so that they can use these tools efficiently and effectively? That's a good question. I I think that, so in order to be able to work in some of these other application areas from uh, w- with 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 a view to solving them from a sort of the fundamentals of, of of science the fundamentals of machine learning perspective then you need to spend actually quite a bit of time to understand that domain mm-hmm. you can't just do it blindly mm-hmm. and come in so i think that in that case having a broad background I'm not sure that philosophy has been useful to me, but I know that people that I work with that have backgrounds in uh, physics, for instance, are really much better suited in some ways to have conversations with scientists in other fields. Or if you have a a chemistry background or something else, then there's ways to put that diversity in your background to work. And, um, you know, I think that the, the liberal arts education system in the U.S. is a really wonderful thing because you can actually get a lot of that breadth. So I always encourage people to do that, to not stay in one particular area too much, but get that breadth even outside of machine learning. And other than that, collaboration is is tricky. It's something that, um, but it's really important in our field, collaboration between industry and academia, collaboration between outside labs and other, other scientific domains with industry, with academia. We have to keep on keeping those things, keeping those ties and keeping those doors open. Yeah, absolutely. So do you, one of the things that the community is talking about more and more is sort of like tactical applications of, of ethics and, and a view on societal issues. Do you find that your, your degree, your background in philosophy has helped you, has armed you for, for thinking about these things on a day-to-day basis more? Uh, not necessarily, although I do enjoy reading some of the books. I remember when Nick Bostrom's um, Superintelligence books came out, I read it and was happy for my background because it's it's a pretty technical book. Um, so I appreciate being able to maybe understand some of those ethical ethical viewpoints. Other than that, I think that it's more practical when I think about ethical questions in terms of what I do. So it's about understanding data. I mean, we can't take shortcuts with that. Somebody said to me, we should always think about data as would my family member, would my sister, my brother be happy with this information being used in this way if it was their information? When you think about use of YouTube videos, say, with the street view data set that we collected and, and, and built into this environment, which is now open sourced, then we took quite a while to understand what would be the right way to gather that data. So even though street view data is something that everybody can look at because they can go online, then storing it yourself on your own computer is something that you can't do because right. of the Google Terms of Services because of privacy concerns. So for us to publish a data set and make it open, Then we had to do a few things. We had to uh, take data that was over a year old, take older data so that any immediate concerns hopefully would have been mitigated. And we had to have humans take a look at every single frame that we had, every single image, and make sure that faces were correctly blurred, license plates were correctly blurred, naked people were correctly blurred. I don't know why there are naked people in Street View, but apparently there are. Apparently there are. So, so we have sort of this clean data set that is separate, but even that is not quite enough because we want to respect the privacy of people that say, wait a minute, I don't want my 
house in Street View. Well, that means it shouldn't be in our Street View data set as well as our environment. So when people download our data set, then they need to agree that if we ask them to apply a patch that would, for instance, remove one of those images, that they will do that within a certain amount of time. So that process took about six months longer than I thought that it would, but I feel like it's worth it. And now I'm hoping to expand that data set so that a lot more researchers can use it for different types of, of, of research. Nice. That's that. That I think is so key is the the consideration of ethical questions and societal implications as you are building something, right? Instead of after you have built it, or as you are collecting the information, instead of after you have collected it. Do you need to bring in those questions as you're building a plan, or or how how do you even begin to consider the questions that you might not be? an expert in, I guess, um, I'm asking in a really ham fisted way, how do you ask a question you've never asked before or wouldn't think to ask as you're building something that you might be very familiar with? Right. Yeah. It's, it's hard. There are considerations that come up that you just didn't think about. There are, we have our blind spots and as researchers, we are thinking about the experiments we want to run the, you know, the paper we want to, we want to write the hypothesis that we want to prove. And I don't think that we can be perfect, but what we can do is there's different ways to consult with somebody who is an expert in this and say, what are the concerns that there might be about using this data? Let's talk about that before I go too far down this road. And then taking that seriously and not second guessing it yourself and saying, oh, no, that, you know, that, that'll be fine. Areas where there might be, be bias or unfairness, that's also really important to to think about and to ask others who know more than you. I'm not an expert in ethics, but I do know sort of who I can reach out to that will help me, uh, you know, make, make some decisions in that direction. And we, we are here at iClear, of which you are a member of the board. Um, have you seen anything at the conference that you've been particularly excited about or anything that made you really want to go and read that paper or spend a bunch of time with that data set? There's, it's, it's been a great conference because of being in New Orleans, but also it's just been a really good conference content-wise. I really enjoyed a couple of the, the keynotes. Pierre-Yves Oudeyer is a researcher from France who works on developmental learning algorithms, the way in which, you know, babies learn, the way in which animals learn, and how can we do that with robotics as well. And he comes up with uh, some really wonderful environments for testing his algorithms. And so I just really enjoyed seeing a full-length keynote uh, from him about his lab. It's always amazing to me how many how uh, GANs and adversarial <laughs> algorithms have just expanded. And I think that Ian Goodfellow gave, gave a talk where he gave the whole spectrum of what's being done in this field. And it's really impressive. It's definitely one of the sort of fundamental new things that's been discovered in the field in recent years. Although I got a little bit tired of seeing adversarial and everything, I think we need a little bit of passive aggressive maybe. <laughs> Passive aggressive network. Somebody write that paper if, if they haven't yet. <laughs> well, Dr. Hetzel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kat. Really nice to be here. Raya Hetzel of DeepMind. Really fascinating to be able to talk with her. Well, that is it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>